Well, Jimmy, welcome to Making a Murderer on West Coast Project. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here. This is episode six. Testing no, it's not. The... Yeah, it is. Testing the evidence. Oh, holy crap. <laughs> she took I notes watched... on the wrong one. No, I'm... <laughs> no. I watched the right one. <laughs> well, that would have been horrible if I hadn't. <laughs> All right, Jamie. This is our uh, this is our reboot of a reboot reboot of a router and a reboot of the episode. That's right. So we're talking about doing a doing a more comprehensive format where we just talk about the theme of the show and not the play by play of the show. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do a hybrid. We'll talk about a little bit of each. Okay, and I'll try to give you as much detail as I have. So I'm talking about um, what I'm talking about is <laughs> is. Uh, then the defense's only strategy here is to poke holes in the prosecution. They can't come up with an alternate perpetrator. They can't offer any other solutions. They got to come up with reasons why the prosecution is wrong. Basically, is the strategy. Right, and so and so for the the people who are um, are for our listeners who may not have all of the detail, the reason why you're saying that is because in previous episodes we've discovered that the judge is refusing to allow the defense to present alternate scenarios of what might have happened. And that is a standard part of any defense, like most defense cases out there, most. And by most I mean like 90%. The the defense will present alternate um, cases where, so that the jury can actually visualize, oh, well, maybe this is what happened. Well, maybe that's what happened. Well, the judge is not allowing Stephen Avery's defense to present alternate scenarios of what might have happened. Right. And we were also talking about how this is hard to podcast because every episode we essentially say the same things. How can they keep this prosecutorial train on its tracks and keep plowing ahead when everything seems so ridiculous? And and my notes on this one, like, they start out by Kratz having the press conference about how Stephen stabbed Teresa. Then he calls Brendan in, and under Brent, under Stephen's instructions, Brendan's supposed to have cut Teresa's throat, and she's still not dead. So they have to carry her out to the garage, and then they shoot her out there, and they still doesn't she doesn't die. So they have to strangle her. So they commit like four different types of murders on one, you know, young woman who's not. She can't. You don't live through those four things, first of all, and there's no blood anywhere. And they prove that their blood should have been everywhere, and yet this train keeps chugging along. And you know, it's just so crazy to me how it sounds, right? Because the first attempt to 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 actually kill her was supposedly to cut her throat, right? She should have bled out, right? No blood. Nobody can find any blood. But then. There's a theory that they shot her in the head as well. So then now we see in this episode that there's supposed to be this blowback because it was a, it was a close uh, proximity, like a close range shooting with a powerful weapon. And so there should have been minute um, bits of blood spatter, like really, really tiny um, uh, particles of blood spatter everywhere like all over the defendant. All yeah, like aerosol-sized, like vaporized yes. blood. Exactly. All over the crime scene, all over everywhere. And that garage, we get really quickly into the, um, into the uh, part of the, the program where they're searching the residence and searching the garage near the residence because they're thinking that the, that the shooting took place in that garage, Right. Well, that's where they found the bullet. So, right. yes. And that garage was packed <laughs> like, you know, it belonged to a pack rat. I mean, there were probably, I don't know if they itemized how many, did they say like there were over 900 pieces of evidence, right, that had been logged? Probably the majority of them came from the, from that garage because they were like, you know, hoses and pieces of paper and shoes and boxes and pieces of plastic and yard equipment and lawn equipment. And I mean, just there was every possible thing you could imagine, you know, inside that garage. And yet there wasn't one single piece of blood evidence. Yeah. If there were 900 things in that garage, then that means there were 10,000 nooks and crannies between all those things. 
Yep. Or a blood aerosol could have floated and chunks of skull could have fallen and everything. You're right. I mean, that garage was oddly sloppy and neat at the same time because the floor was pretty pristinely clean, even though it was full of junk. There was no blood on the floor. I mean, they tore up concrete, and they didn't find blood soaked into any of the concrete. The thing I thought was the most interesting about that, and I don't know how far we are away from speaking about that, was the fact that there was no blood from Teresa found there. There was no blood from anybody found in that garage. Um, However, it wasn't cleaned with bleach because they didn't find bleach. And they also didn't find that it was pristinely clean. Stephen Avery's DNA was all over the place. So if somebody cleaned it, they would have had to clean it and then go and redeposit Stephen Avery's DNA all over the place as though it had never been cleaned. Yeah, the train just keeps chugging along on those tracks. A train of evidence that it's not even evidence. It's common sense. Stuff doesn't add up. You sit around talking with you know two or three smart friends you realize this shit doesn't add up man but um the state can keep chugging that train forward and that's really the the frustrating thing here that's right so another thing at the beginning they talk about this the beginning buting says and i'm mixing up string and buting i know if people are listening and cringing they're they're interchangeable they're equal they're equally brilliant string and buting the defense attorneys but buting says the hardest thing about this case is trying to figure out how to deal with what the public heard. Right. With Brendan's speaking the way he did, everybody heard it, and the public now has an opinion. And, and, and they, have to, they have to deal with the fact that the jurors know all of this. And, the, and the, the, now the state never even has to put Brendan on the stand where they could cross him because it's already out. All this bullshit's already out there. It's already tainted. So if right. they don't put him on the stand... It's a clever move. String actually says this. It's a clever move by them not to call Brandon so they can't cross him. And plus, he's never he's not a good witness. He would look like a dope That's that he what? is on the stand. And everyone would just go, oh, this guy's not credible. But yet he's behind the scenes now. That's right. That's right. I mean, he's in everybody's consciousness. They have cleverly inserted him into everyone's mind. They have painted him as the, you know, the person who's confessed and given the world the information that they were missing and put the story to and the explanation to all the physical evidence the way that awful, awful prosecutor sound said. And, you know, and so really the defense is even more boxed in by, by the failures of the prosecution. It's just the whole thing is horrible. So let's go through the play-by-play. If we repeat some of our stuff because we're jumping ahead and back, that's okay. We'll just we'll just gloss over it the second time. All right. Um, so law enforcement does some more searches. They do. They get to the garage, and Kratz puts one of the investigators from these searches on the stand, Dave Remaker, and asks if anything was moved or handled by law enforcement. And um, he says yes. And this is then they show how they found this bullet in the garage. So they think she was shot. In the garage, because they find this flattened bullet, they find a million shell casings, like you would in any outdoorsy hunting Wisconsin family's farm. A million shell casings everywhere, right? They shoot bullets everywhere. They're probably shooting at rats and mice and whatever target practice, and but not a lot of bullets. But they do find this one bullet in the garage, and that's why they think that's where Teresa was murdered. Right. Jamie, have you ever shot a gun? Yes. Do you own a gun? No. <laughs> Although I think you and I have talked about this before on our Americans broadcast. I used to live um, very close to a county where it is the law that you are supposed to carry a gun every time you leave your house. You Georgians, you're crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, nobody does the law anymore, but still. Well, now, so Strang talks to Fassbender. Um, he says Link was there on the site. Of course, Link is the Manitowoc detective, not supposed to be anywhere near this. They're supposed to have handed it off to 
I think it's Calhoun, Calhoun County. And he admits that before March 1st, March 2nd, they had found no DNA anywhere from Teresa anywhere. Right. But this bullet is different because they're going to start to tell us that her DNA is on this bullet mm-hmm. that was in the garage. So Kratz now counters with Fassbender on the stand. And he says, well, there may maybe not have been DNA evidence, but I wish I could do this guy's voice because he's got the weaseliest voice. <laughs> Um, but on November 5th, way before all this, you did find Teresa's phone number written on a piece of paper on Stephen's computer table. You're talking about the prosecutor. Yeah, Kratz, prosecutor. Ugh, I hate him. Yeah, it jumped from Strang to Kratz. Mm. So they, so he does get Fassbender to admit that, or not admit, he brings it to the public's attention or the jury's attention that they did have some stuff on Stephen. It was the phone number, you know, Teresa's phone number was written down and it was on his computer table. Right, but that was so, God, that was so slimy, what that guy did. Because, you know, what Budig ended on was not the idea of, um, like, physical evidence. He said DNA evidence. And so then here comes, what's his name, Kratz behind him, um, talking about physical evidence. You know, I was just, uh, he knew what he was. He's a smart dude, but he's a slimy smart dude. Yeah, I actually corrected myself on the fly there because I thought I was wrong. But when I said there was no DNA evidence, but there was other evidence. You're right. Kratz is trying to make it sound like there's more reasons to believe that Stephen's guilty than there really even should be. Yep. All right. So Strang, actually, this is cool. Strang gets angry and makes a motion to strike this whole thing and the answer because... Bobby Dassey, who all this stuff came from, never saw, he never said that he saw Teresa in the trailer. And the judge actually stands this, he sustains this objection. Yes, I couldn't believe it. So we kind of, we skipped over one thing in the very beginning here, Jamie, that the press, the, the prosecution is holding this trial in the press. They're telling the, wor- the world, the public, and everybody that, that by all these implications that Stephen should be guilty, they're using more implication than they are actual evidence. Yep, they want popular opinion to weigh, like, everything. So there's an interesting scene here now, Jamie. This is maybe one of the most controversial parts of this whole episode and maybe this whole series. When they go to the Calumet County Courthouse where the trial's being held, on episode six, this is at about 12 minutes and 45 seconds into the episode, there's a big guy in the back of one of the scenes behind Kratz. Kratz is talking to somebody. This guy's standing in the background, kind of silhouetted against the window in the courtroom or in the mm-hmm. lobby of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And he's an older guy. He's wearing, like, sweatpants. He's really heavy. He looks overweight. There's an author who asserts that this guy is, this, is a serial killer and likely the murderer of Teresa. What? And he puts up some links, and he kind of explains his theory. He's, he says this guy is Edward Wayne Edwards, who was a, a, eventually caught later, I guess, and convicted as of being a serial killer, and he's in the he's in the hallway of the courtroom, and this may be one of the real suspects in the trial, or real suspects in the case, not the trial. Really. So it's kind of an interesting kink into this. I'll put I'll put a link about it in the show notes. I am just looking at this now. See how quietly I hammered that out, Mike. Nice job. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, let's see. I'm looking now. John Cameron is the author, and Edward Edward Wayne Edwards is the person he's claiming could could have been Teresa's murderer. Wow. So that guy shows up in this oddly in this episode. Oh, you know what? This dude is um, the one that you're saying is a serial killer. Um, he's a former cop. And FBI cold case worker. So he has all the information that he would need to um, set somebody up, you know. It's an interesting read. Even if you don't buy into the theory, it's interesting the way this camera guy puts puts it forward. Hmm. All right. So they start talking about bone fragments back in the trial. And they pull up a specialist, this, this Leslie Eisenberg, this, the schnurdly lady. They have a lot of schnurdly uh, police crime specialists in this episode and she talks about how bones have a def- the bones in that they have of Teresa have a defect it has a, they have a radial opaque particles in them which uh, indicate a gunshot right 
Now, she doesn't say which homicidal violence, but she says, I've, I've determined that the cause of death was homicidal violence. Right. Like, no kidding, lady. You got a, you got a body chopped up into bones that are burned with a hole bore into them with a bullet. Pretty yeah. good guess that it's homicidal violence. I would say that was an excellent guess. <laughs> so as they file out of court, Kratz holds another one of his press. There's a lot of press talk here, a lot of press interaction here. Press, press conference held by Kratz says, we've, showed you, we've now shown you not only the cause of death, but the manner of death. And he's calling this bullet evidence in Teresa's skull, the manner of death. So now you know who it was. We got the bullet. It's in Stephen's garage. Got Teresa's DNA on it. Got the bones showing that the bullet penetrated her skull. It was the way that she got killed. So it's now you know what happened. Now, now you know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, try, again, trying the case in the front of the press. That's right. That's right. I mean, the guy, he's, he's I, I'm, I'm going to give it to him. He is a smart dude. He's clever, but he is the slimiest. I, I mean, every move that he makes, it seems like, you know, like he's ready. Like everything that comes out of his mouth, he would be a fantastic defense attorney. Like he really should turn his life around and become a, <laughs> become a defense attorney for people who are innocent, but who are being railroaded because he would be lauded as a hero. Are we going to meet Sherry Colhane now, Jamie, the Wisconsin Another technical crime investigator. She's the woman with the giant blonde hair. Yeah, I was about to say that. The big blonde hair. <laughs> uh, somebody said in the in the comments that she her hair was so big that it was because she had to hide a bunch of bullshit in it. Uh, <laughs> oh god, I love that. <laughs> but um, it's really funny because she, she she they she admits that she introduced her own DNA into the bullet onto the bullet by talking while she was teaching a class. And as she's sitting down to take the stand, she belches out a great big cough. It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I just thought that whole thing was so interesting. Um, you know, and, and part of what I, I wished that they had focused on um, didn't get any more um, information or anything about it but the fact that she like later on they're going to talk about how she had all of the um dna evidence that related to the stephen avery crime just sitting on her desk for like five months or whatever yeah we also get to see this press babe that i was talking up last time and you know you weren't too fond of but there's this press babe she's really good looking but she's also super smart and she calls up that again being tried in front of the press again these people getting interviewed um by the way the press is getting way more information than the jury, way more accurate information and meaningful information than the mm-hmm. jury ever hears. That's right. But um, so this this lady, Sherry, says, yeah, I, I accidentally introduced my own DNA by talking while the bullet was, I guess, meaning her saliva or her, or her speaking could have misted some saliva onto the DNA on the bullet. Mm-hmm. Something like that. So the press babe says, well, if it's so easily contaminated, couldn't it have happened the other way around? Couldn't Teresa's DNA have gotten accidentally swabbed onto the bullet by something in the test tube or something else that came in contact with it? Maybe you poisoned this evidence, but couldn't it have happened that the Teresa DNA got onto that bullet accidentally somehow? Uh-huh. Pretty smart. It was pretty smart that this press woman figured that part out. I don't have to ask that question. Right. I liked that, too. But the, the big blonde lady says, no, that's not possible. Right. Just dismisses it. <laughs> so yeah. Buting then comes on. The other hero on the defense team, superhero Buting, comes on and says, we just all along wanted fair testing. It's all we wanted. And so we wanted an observer to test them doing to watch them doing the testing. But the state declined it because there was too much chance for potential contamination. Yeah, they they didn't just decline it. They they argued against it. Like they were vigorous about it, like saying, we don't want, you know, oh, we think that your personal caused contamination or something, you know, to the to the sample, um, you know, which I guess one would expect the state to do. I don't know. I would think that out of courtesy and seeing as how they're the prosecution, that they would, you know, allow the defense to have someone present 
Um, I think it would be professional courtesy, but what do I know? Well, they use the word fairness a lot. If nothing else, it's fair, right? Just let us watch you. Let us just see what, how you're doing and make sure everything's on the up and up. It's fair. It's not an implication that you're crooked, but it's fair. Mm-hmm. Why not? You know, why not? That's the main thing. That's right. I think, Jamie, though, actually that the fact that Teresa's DNA got onto the bullet fragment by some other artificial way, I think that's kind of a thin defense by Buting. I think it probably probably did have her DNA on it, but um, but it, but but by all means, the rules say that because she sneezed on it or spoke over it or spit into it, that it should have rendered it neutral. She should not have been able to claim that it was clearly uh, admissible as Teresa's DNA. Right. Well, I don't think that that bullet had the DNA on it. I I think that um, I think that it did not have it. Um, I think that there's a whole lot of smoke and mirrors going on around there. And I think that to find the bullet that killed this woman and have it have so little blood on it that you can't see any of the blood and that whatever sample you produce from cleaning, you know, the bullet, um, that, you know, there's so little of that that you can't, you know, you can only test it once. There's not enough left to test again. Eh, it's really thin. Well, plus this woman looks really guilty. She looks really nervous, like she's going to be, uh, she's going to be caught in something. Because the first time we saw her was Kratz interviewing her on the stand, or not interviewing her, but interrogating her on the stand. And then Buting does. So Buting comes up. And this is where she actually blasts out a cough because she's nervous. She blasts out a big cough as he starts his, his uh, <laughs> questions with her. And he talks to her about a record about the phone call that she gets from Fassbender, the detective, the prosecuting detective, essentially telling her what to do. Try to put her into his house or his garage. Mm-hmm. She's got her marching orders from the, from the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Buting says this, you were told what results to come up with before you even finished your test. That's right. Now she tries to say it had no bearing on my analysis, but you know that maybe you're right. He, he told her to put her there and maybe she, I mean, she looked like she, she didn't look crooked. She just looked nervous. So I don't see her planting evidence onto this bullet. Maybe somebody else had already done it. I don't know, but she looked she looked nervous, like she had something to hide. I think you just I think you just came up with the magic thing. I think that they would not have asked her to plant evidence on that that bullet because she would have had to testify. And they didn't want her to be able to to they didn't want her to have to perjure herself. So they, but she probably realizes what kind of stuff goes on in her office. She has to, right? She's been there for a long time. She's been doing that job. She probably knows that there are people who mess around with stuff. I, I think you're, I think you're onto something. Well, they think, catch her. They catch her here doing something she's never in her career done before. Right. So let's continue on. So Buting says to her, "So you could not see blood on the bullet, correct?" So you cannot tell me if the DNA came from blood or from another source. And so she does, she's forced to admit some of this. She, so she says, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. So then Buting points out, well, the rules are that if there's contamination, you're supposed to report this, uh, this all as inconclusive, right? And she says, right. So she's going down. She's telling the truth here. Mm-hmm. But I think she was put in a position to, to, to let some evil happen. That's correct. I agree with <laughs> Um, so I, I don't know how much of this is my, I can't remember all these details, but so why did you report it then as Teresa's? And then, and by the way, you cannot redo the test because you screwed up and used up the whole sample. Right. Right. Um, and then, so she had requested, and I forget the terminology for this, Jamie, but some sort of deviation that she could interpret something and not use actual evidence, but just use an interpretation. And then she didn't disclose that. No, what what that is is that that she uh, normally, and for literally every other case in her long career, any time that there was any kind of contamination, 
the results were con would were categorized as inconclusive. That is the process. That's the procedure that they have set up for that in their office. That's their method, right? That's what they're supposed to do. This one time ever in her whole career, and I would be interested to know, I would be interested to know, this is the question I would have asked if I had been the attorney, I would have found out how many times any kind of contamination that's ever happened has been from her or from somebody else in the lab where they have gone ahead and called it inconclusive as opposed to making this one-time exception, one time in her career. And that's what happened. It should have been called inconclusive results and been not admitted. But because uh, Fassbender needed this evidence, he had her request an exception to that, and it was approved, and the evidence was admitted. And she had only, this was the first time she had ever done that in her whole career. In her entire career. So Buting finishes up. He says, well, so no other test put Teresa in the garage or the vehicle, right? No other things other than this thing put her in the garage or vehicle. Is that right? So he's really clever. He uses Fassbender's words, putting mm -hmm. her in the garage or vehicle, and, and then Sherry has to admit right again that he's correct. Mm-hmm. So then they have another press conference, and the reporters are getting good at this now. They're getting, they're getting into these these guys' faces. So mm -hmm. the special prosecutor comes on and he says, "Come on, you need to allow common sense that there was no sample left, and sometimes you just need to deviate to make sense out of it." Like, come on, we all know common sense when we see common sense. And this is where that press babe comes up again, and she's like, "I wish I knew, I knew her name. I shouldn't be calling her press babe, but she's hot." <laughs> But she says, dude, that's up to the jury, not up to you. That common sense, you just make a decision behind the closed doors and you're the only one doing it. That's up to the jury, not you. Really good comment, really strong comment. So then yep. we have from Stephen via phone. He's, somehow they're interjecting these phone comments from him. It's pretty, pretty timely and interesting. Something isn't right. They checked once. They didn't find anything. Now they're finding all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it's true. Left to their own devices, they're not on the up and up they're finding or creating all this evidence right yeah all right so we see the we see buting and strang now with alan avery alan the dad and he he just comes out with some uh good old folksy logic when there's blood there's blood you butcher a deer it's on the floor it's on the wall it's everywhere mm -hmm. and buting says yeah there's five quarts of blood in a human body that's a lot of blood five quarts yeah. where was it where did it all go right yeah, I mean, magically, it just disappeared. They're, the blood just went away. These are all friendlies in the same room. They're kind of preaching to each other's choir here, but it's pretty clear that that is a great argument. And Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Like, where is this blood? There's got to be a stain here or something more than a droplet. Droplets can easily be planted. You can't plant big old puddle of blood, which there should have been everywhere. Right, exactly. So to kind of show that, Jamie, they go back in court and they show the concrete floor and law enforcement had jackhammered it up to look at the concrete chunks to look for blood seeping in. And um, I forget who's talking to Sherry again now, but they said, did you find any blood in that concrete? No. If it, if it was bleached, you wouldn't have found anything, right? That's right. But so that can't, ha can't have happened that it was bleached because you found Stephen's DNA there, like I think you said at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. This is um, another kind of a, a defense investigator, Pete Betts, and he just opines that there's no way that Stephen is capable of sanitizing all this stuff down to this degree that it would have to be to be this clean. No. That even technicians, expert technicians, couldn't sanitize it that clean. Right. That's exactly right. He said, yes, he says that. He says DNA technicians or something, you know, um, would maybe be able to do it, but there's, there's no way they'd be able to do it that cleanly or get it to where it had, I don't remember what he said exactly, but it was perfect. I mean, it was so true, you know, some common sense there. So Buting back on the stand with this woman, Sherry with the giant hair, 
You tested everything and found no Teresa blood. That's right. Well, what about Brendan's DNA? Did you find any of that? Nope, none. So Brendan's, if Brendan's in the room there committing this crime, supposedly with Stephen. Why isn't his DNA in there? Oh, um, if, you're, if you're under 17 and your IQ is under 80, you don't have DNA. What? Kidding. I'm trying to say I don't have IQ if you want me to believe that. <laughs> crazy i mean i just don't know how this is still happening to this guy so jump back to the press jamie now they're talking to kratz the prosecuting guy where so where's dude where is all this blood and dna and kratz just says well you won't hear me talk about it till this comes up in court it's not appropriate to talk about it here so he's he uses the press for one thing when he needs them to be his mouthpiece and then he shuts it down when he doesn't want to uh, reveal his hand in front of them. Yes, and that's why he's so freaking slimy and clever because anytime he's got to actually come up with something real, he just excuses it and says, oh, I'm not going to talk about that now. Yeah, he's smart, but he's not that clever. I mean, it's pretty transparent to see what the hell he's doing here. Well, we can see it. Apparently, they can't see it over there. The press could see it. The press- idiot jurors couldn't see it, I guess. I guess not. So we do some of this. Um, one one effect these producers do, Jamie, is they do this driving around with people, which is really an awesome thing, talking to the people while driving in their car. And mm-hmm. it makes it look like they're just talking to each other. But you got to think about it. Somehow in the back seat, you know, these producers were there with their camera and microphone. So yep. they had to ask, hey, Jerry, how about we hop in the back seat and ride with you as you drive back into town? Mm-hmm. You know, and at the time, he let them do that. And we get some great conversation because of that. Yeah, I love that. It was a great idea, a great reporting idea to cover it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so Strang says, or either Strang or Buning, again, they're talking to each other in the car. Out of 18 days of testimony, 15 or 16 of them happened exactly the way we wanted them to happen. We were able to bring out our defense theme in 15 or 16 of the 18 days of testimony. Right. But the problem is, what it all comes down to is stupidity. And then he says, the key in the bedroom keep popping up in the bedroom eight days after it's been searched or whatever, however much time. On the seventh search, on the seventh search. See, I didn't know that until this episode. I didn't realize that they had searched his room seven freaking times. Yeah, and then they moved a slipper or something and the key was underneath it. You've got to be the most inept people to investigate anything ever in the history of investigation. To miss it. Six times. So the key in the bedroom, the, the fact that bones are in a burn pit 20 feet from the perpetrator, supposed perpetrator's window when he owned a smelter. I mean, he could have blasted everything to smithereens and nobody would have been, there would have been no bones or anything. Yep. A smelter melts metal. Yeah. But no, there's, he, put the, he left the bones 20 feet outside his window. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen's blood in the Rev 4 vehicle. And the contaminated bullet in the garage. Those are the smoking guns that have Stephen in all this trouble. That's right. Everybody's believing that, but they're ignoring the st- other stupid stuff that we've been talking about. All right, Stephen talks again to the, another crime technician, and we find out that every type of bone, almost every type of bone in the human body was represented in those fragments. And then Strang comes in and says there were three burn sites. Is that correct? That's correct. And they were all the same bones, so most likely one body. It was one body being burned. And then they try to figure out where most of this burning took place, Jamie. And they determined that it was probably at the behind the garage, so some bones had to be moved. And that's important because why would you move the bones? If you were trying to plant bones, you would move them. If you're trying to murder somebody and just cover up evidence, why would you move them to three sites? That's right. Yeah, I, I, um, I couldn't pick. It took me a while to figure out what they were talking about. I think I must have listened to that part of the um, episode at least four times because I couldn't figure out what the what the import was of having three sites and, you know, all that stuff. I just hadn't put it together logically in my mind. So I kept going back again and back and listening to it. And then it started to hit me 
as the scenes went on, and then they started um, examining, cross-examining that forensic doctor, the the doctor who was talking about the bones and them being broken and all that. Yeah, they call him a forensic anthropologist. So yeah, think of Stephen doing it. If Stephen killed her and burned her body, why would he bring then those bones to three separate sites, one of which was 20 feet from his window? But if somebody was trying to plant bones and make them look guilt, make him look guilty, then that would be more plausible. That's, so that's right. why they're trying to crack that that problem. Well, not only that, but the idea of the moving—you know—why would you do that if it's if it's on your property and you just murdered this person? It doesn't make sense to move the bones from one location to another location. It makes sense to throw them in the smelter because you know the smelter is going to get rid of everything, right? It makes sense to put them in one place and burn them in one place. It doesn't make sense to burn them up and then, oh, hey, let me stick them in a barrel and go move them over here and then leave part of what I moved in the barrel. And, I mean, it just it doesn't make sense. Or to move them closer to your house. Right. You'd maybe move them out into the woods and maybe scatter them around in the woods, but you wouldn't move them right right to your front, front, front in front of your window. Right. All right, Stephen, back on the phone now. He says, I don't know who would be doing this to me. I can't figure it out, just like in my last case. If he did this, Jamie, he, he, again, he's either the greatest actor or he's, uh, or he's got himself fooled and he's got some sort of split personality because he can't talk like this if he really did this, I don't think. That is exactly, exactly what I thought when I heard him say that. Exactly what I thought. Because, you know, this is a man who is having a repeat of the experience that he had before. To him, these two things are the same. The old case where he was eventually exonerated based on DNA evidence and the, and the finding of the actual culprit. And... This case now, where we don't know the truth of it, you know, supposedly, we don't know the truth of it, this guy is having the same experience. That's why those things are parallel in his mind. In reverse, almost like DNA evidence got him off the first case, and DNA evidence is getting him into hot water in this case. Well, well, I mean, okay, so if you want to look at it that if you're those people, and you want to look at it that way, yes. But what I'm saying is like exactly what he said in that phone call when he says, you know, just like in my last, you know, the last time he was trying to figure out who would do this to him, you know, the yeah, answer out loud to us. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty scheming. If he's actually putting on an act here, that's really super scheming. He's not smart enough to do that. Well, it is, Mike. And, and the reason why it's. It's really a clever thing for him to do if he's going to make that up is because ordinarily, if you were innocent in one case and then you committed, you actually committed the crime in another case, in your own mind, those things would not be the same. It wouldn't be a natural thing for you to compare them that way, the way that he did just then so naturally on the phone with his way below average IQ. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. This guy is innocent. We get another sad glimpse of mom and pop, Jamie. They visit him in jail, and they're having their dinner meal from the vending machines. They're eating this crappy candy, candy bars. Sad. This is a really sad little scene of them sitting in that waiting room of the jail. It is horrible. It's, I don't know. But I, I liked it. I actually kind of liked it. That's the one where he says... Um, <laughs> where the 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 dad says, you can't eat that. It's not good for your diabetes. And she's like, I don't care. Well, and he's not much better. They're both they're both not the greatest physical specimens. I thought it was sweet. I really liked the way he said it to her. It was really cute. Like you know, like he loves her. I I liked it. Well, they're troopers. They're sticking together and sticking up for their son. That's really admirable. So next we see Teresa's car in the crime lab, and then Strang comes on and says the blood, the fact that the car was in the crime lab, they showed that her, her hair had distributed some blood, like a little trail of blood on the hair, like a paintbrush would, would leave, like a line of blood. And Strang actually says the blood in the RAV4 helps us because it means that her body was transported farther than a few feet. If, if Stephen burned her 
in one spot and dragged her and moved her and burned her some more or moved her from one spot to burn her closer, he wouldn't have put her in the car to do it. It probably means she was away from the property and put in the car and brought back to the property. Well, it would have to be. And, you know, and we see that later um, when the attorneys are talking about it. It makes no sense. If he killed this girl, you know, on the site, on the actual, like, on his property, he would not put her in that car. That's just more contamination. And by the way, like, where is the rest of all the stuff they did to her? Like, wouldn't, like, there be more blood in the car because she had been, um, had her throat cut and she had been um, shot. So there should have been bone matter in the car. There should have been blood. There should have been brain tissue. There should have been other kinds of body tissue, Right. Yeah, if he if she was on his property and that was the last place she ever went in her life and he was the last person to see her alive, she would have never gone in the car again. He would have never put her in the car. There'd been no reason to. Precisely. Yet her blood was in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-uh. All right, so there's some interesting relationships in this uh, series, Jamie. We're going to meet this guy, Scott Tadich, uh, who's Barbara's husband. Barbara is Brandon's mother. Right. Barbara Jassy is married to Scott Tadich, mm-hmm. who's Brandon's mother, but he's not his father. Right. <laughs> uh, is he Bobby's father? Uh, maybe. Or, or did Bobby and Brandon have the same father? I don't know, but, you know, Bobby's a few miles ahead of Brandon, so I don't know. Brendan, so I don't know. Brendan's a little older, but a little dumber. Oh, I didn't. I thought or is Bobby, the other way around? Is Bobby older and smarter? I can't remember. Well, I thought Bobby was older, but maybe he's not. I don't know. It doesn't even matter. No. But they, but um, Kratz sets up this guy, Tadich, and then Strang shoots him down. This is pretty funny. Kratz says, I remember the fire the most. I went deer hunting, and I saw Bobby Dassey. And when I returned to every po- property, I saw a great big fire, giant 20-foot flames. And Stephen was standing right next to it. Mm-hmm. And then Strang gets to him and says, you remember this day because you skipped work? Who else saw you? And he says, nobody. And, and then they kind of tease him up. And he says, well, do you remember what you told law enforcement 15 months ago? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I arrived back at 2.30. And then, he sh- then Strang shows him the record. And the correct time that he admitted back at the time was 3.15. When he makes him admit it in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And he had also, at the at the time of the original statement said that the, the flames were three feet high, not 20 feet high. Right. Not 10 or 20 feet, like he said this time. Really interesting. Really interesting. So this kind of destroys the timeline that the state, if you believe this, that what the guy originally said was true, destroys the state's timeline that they're counting on that Stephen had this time to get Brandon and murder this girl at 2.30. That's right. Um, when he says originally, I didn't come home till like 3.15, 3.30. So where are we now? So Buting comes back on and he says Bobby and Tadich essentially alibied themselves because nobody else saw them. They were on the property. They had access to Teresa and Stephen and all this evidence. And then one of them was contradicted by a really super credible witness who you meet next, Jamie, the bus driver. Right. And Um, that's the one I thought you were saying was cute because she's pretty. Oh, I didn't notice. I didn't take notice of her. She was only on here just one. I think this may be the only time we see her. Okay. This press woman keeps popping up. But, um, yeah, the bus driver, she's there every day at 3.30, 3.40, whatever. She knows the route. She knows what time she's there, and she knows who she saw. She let the boys off the bus, right? That's right. And if, you, and if it's your job, you know, and, and which that's what the attorney brings up, he says, you know, this is somebody whose job it is to know what time it is, you know, <laughs> while she's driving her bus route that's timed every single day, you know. And she saw Teresa taking pictures at 3.30 to 3.40 sometime in that little window. So that ruins the whole timeline of the state and prosecution. That's right. All right. Now to the media again. Um, the reporter to Strang says, so you're really doing a good job at poking holes in the state's timeline. And Strang kind of pushes back. He says, well, you assume they have a timeline 
and mm-hmm. we are but what we're doing is we're establishing the timeline we're establishing what really happened we're not poking that's- holes in something that happened we are establishing what happened with a real impartial witness who goes there every day at the same time i mean why why should we have to establish why should we be responsible for doing this we're just reporting the the facts mm-hmm. And isn't this when he says he's actually surprised that it was the defense who had to find somebody to establish a timeline? Yes. Something like that. And the media lady asks, how does this help Stephen if it's all occurring an hour later? And Strang lays it out. He says, well, that because because that means Bobby's testimony means there's a different timeline that doesn't fit Brandon's timeline. And the state's counting on Brandon's timeline for it all to for it all to add up. To establish the charge of false imprisonment. Right. And thus the rest of the crime. Right. I mean, if Brandon's lying about, Brendan is lying about the false imprisonment, or he's just confused, doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's confused and lying or doesn't know what he's talking about everything else, too. That's right. So they can't dismiss this, this dispute, in, you know, in the timeline for the crime. They, you know, they've set it up to exactly, and now that there's something that proves, you know, you hang by it, or you, you know, by or you live by it. It's one or the other. So now Stephen comes on the phone and emphasizes what we just said about Strang. The state doesn't have to prove anything, and we have to prove everything. Um, it's just making these honest, simpleton statements. Again, they're not calculating, calculated. They're just, they're just him saying what he's, what his feeble mind is observing. But he's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Strang Strang brings up another problem that they have that no lawyer can portray that the police framed his client. If you if you ever use this as a defense that a defendant is framed by law enforcement, the people that hear it won't like it. And those people could be the jury or the public or anybody. But you can't really use that as your argument. Yeah, it's um, it's it's awesome what he said. I loved it. I loved what he said so much. I loved it. What I mean, like the endings are getting so, so freaking good to these episodes because he's like, so when you, you, um, how do you say it? When you, uh, when you confront, when you're confronted with the need to present a defense that your client was, was framed by the police, you're not happy. Like you're never happy. Yeah. When you confront this as a defense, the defendant's frame, being framed by law enforcement, people won't like it. They won't buy it. They won't like hearing it. Yeah, and then he's saying, like, people are people outside of large cities are raised to believe that the police are the good guys. They believe, you know, because, like, the police help, you know, people out in the suburbs. Like, I, I loved that so much. And I loved that we finally have um, Strang and Buting saying that they think the police did it. Because this is the first time we hear this from them. They can think it, but it still doesn't wipe away the fact that it's a big problem for them because they have to convince other people. But, yeah, I do like he- having them he- hearing them say it, too. Right, because up until now, it was like, no, we don't believe the police did it. We believe somebody else did this, but we don't know who. But we don't think it was the police because there was some address to that in an earlier episode. I want to say it was episode three. Um episode three or four where they said that. And I was just, you know, at the time I was thinking like, um, you know, you're the only ones out here who don't believe it's the police, (laughs) you know, who did it, but now they do. Well, I don't think they, I don't think the police did it. And I don't think they're saying the police did it. I think they're saying that the police framed it though, the way they wanted it to be seen. I'm sorry. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. So now Buting comes in right after this comment by Strang, and he makes his brilliant observation that there's a theory that so many people would have had to been involved to make this possible, but this is not true, that they, in fact, didn't need lots of people to set this up. Maybe one or two people could have done it. And then he talks about the whole argument of why risk it, and he says, well, they didn't ever think they were risking anything because they never had any fear of ever getting caught. They're the police. They're the detectives. Nobody, nobody's going to question them being on the scene when they're supposed to have handed this over to the next county. That's right. They, they had carte blanche to do whatever they want, so they never were afraid of ever being caught. That's right. And then the famous ending. I loved it. I loved it so much. 
please state your name and spell your last name for the record. <laughs> yeah, Detective Lank. Yep. So, Jamie, what did you see in number seven that made you want to keep watching? No, heard. What I heard was um, James Lank getting on the stand. They're going to do his testimony next. Yeah, well, that's how they end six. So, it, And then I'm sure it continues with him on the stand in seven. But I thought you watched a little bit of seven. Yeah, I didn't. No, no, no. I was listening to it as I was driving up into my driveway. And I could hear in the beginning that it was getting into his testimony. And I really wanted to hear it because I knew how six ended. So I was like, ah, but I didn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's it for six. Testing the evidence next week is framing defense. And awesome. we'll try to cover it as soon as we can, probably sometime next week on West Coast Project. Or Bonfire Making a Murder. Or, Jamie, how do people reach you in the meantime? On Twitter, I'm at WordGirly, W-O-R-D-G-I-R-L-Y. And I'm at Scathing Tweets. Jamie, we're watching a couple other shows in between doing this. That's Doing a couple other shows. Our friends um, Michelle and Mike do uh, The Americans. We never talked about them, but they always talk about us on their shows. Uh, They talk about our podcast. But Michelle and Mike on Tribal tribal Rant do a, a version of The Americans. Yes, that's right. So you should listen to both of them. It's not as good as ours, but it's, it's pretty good. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. No, it's really good. And uh, we do the Americans on West Coast Project. So just go to West Coast Project. Check us out. All of our feeds are in there. And you have any final comments, Jamie? Um, no, not uh, other than join us next week because I can't wait to watch 7 and we'll talk about it then. Okay, framing the defense. Till then, Jamie, see you. Then. All right, Mikey. Bye. Bye.